listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Simple. Layered. Religious. Scott Blasco is a composer from Eastern Washington, where he teaches composition, theory, and electronic music at Washington State University. Scott earned a doctorate in music composition at the University of Missouri-Kansas City and a master's in theology and the arts at Fuller Theological Seminary. A composer of both electronic and acoustic music, he uses his work to explore interests in liturgy and theology, time and repetition, and simplicity and limited aleatory. Beyond music, Scott enjoys home brewing, a good old-fashioned, building things, and attempting to converse with his wife while negotiating the carpet of Legos laid by his two young children. Anyway, so we will... uh... We'll leave the uh, Star Wars sure. yeah. talk. I, I'm, I'm and, super psyched. That's my summary. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm super psyched for episode nine, which yeah, is whatever, too. like two years away. So whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so man, let's get it. Let's get into your music. Um, we're going to start off with your piece, One Day as a Thousand Years. And this is sure. like your most recent piece, correct? Yeah. It's actually still in progress. Right. So like... So, we're going to be listening to what you call part one. Yeah. Um, is part two that's what you're that's what you're still working on? Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably part two is probably half done at this point. I have I mean okay. the form of it is all the way sketched out, but not not all everything is is uh, in place yet. It's all structurally there. And this is your second uh well, I think your second piece for piano and electronics. Yeah. And also the second piano and electronics piece with a religious theme. Yeah. And also the second written for Carrie Johnson. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> and all of that is sort of uh, circumstantial in a way. It's like, um, yeah? because, well, sort of, I guess, uh, when I was writing Queen of Heaven, what? Six years ago, more. Well, whatever, six years ago worked. Um, So I was writing that for Kari. And then um, at the same time, I was... um, uh, I did a research paper about uh, works for... Specifically for piano and electronics that were concert length. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... and, uh, I was already, while I was, you know, still in the middle of writing Queen of Heaven, I was thinking like, oh, I want to write a, a sort of, a, I want to write a concert length follow-up piece. And I talked to Kari and she was like, yeah, that would be great. And then life happened. And, um, <laughs> so As it I, does, yeah. Yeah. And I, I never had a chance. I never had the opportunity because it's such a huge undertaking to write yeah. a big piece like that. I never had the opportunity to do it. And then I, I got this grant from the university, from, from Washington State, um, that is, it's to support, uh, pre-tenure faculty, basically. Nice. Um, and so it's like, I applied for way too much money, uh, to support a project and they didn't, of course they didn't give me all of it, but they gave me way more than I expected. Right. And so I I bought a bunch of shit and I started writing music (laughs) and, um, (laughs) So I'm curious I, about the other pieces that you um, that you found in your research of like piano piano and electronics 
concert length works. What yeah. were what were some of those? The main pieces I looked at were um, there was Stockhausen's Mantra, which is actually for uh-huh. two pianos. Um, and similarly, Matt Bertner has a piece, uh, Signal Ruins, which is for also for two. It's actually for two pianos plus percussion plus electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Marco Stropa is an Italian composer has a piece uh, Tritoria Deviata um, which I think translates to uh, trajectories deviated from or something like that mm-hmm. um, and there was one other piece and I'm trying to remember what it was um, I'd have to go back and look at my notes I don't remember there were a mm-hmm. handful because there were several other pieces that I looked at but they, they were like long pieces, but they didn't have electronics like, you know, uh, Tom Johnson's An Hour for Piano. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, uh, well, obviously there's Mess In, uh, Vent Regard. Which, sure. Like that's been an important piece for me, like for ages. I've loved that or piece. So, or but... even something like uh, Shevsky's The People United. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. that actually, I think The People United was, was initially one of the reasons why I wanted to write a really long piece. Hmm, um, okay. that because I of uh, that piece and Vent Regard actually together because I saw a performance of Vent Regard in like 2002 or 3 something like that um, and that just sort of has been that performance has like been resonating in the mm-hmm. back of my mind ever since it was just such a phenomenal concert experience so this piece the two parts are kind of structured around the liturgical year mm-hmm. so so this first part what what part of the year are we hearing so this is the christmas season and and so this is one of the things like a like i knew i wanted to write a thing around the liturgical year following sort of the church year uh and i wanted to write it cyclically my initial plan was that it was it would be a cyclical piece that whatever the date of the performance wherever that fell in the liturgical year that was where you started in the piece and you just looped Mm -hmm. around there which sounded great on paper and it's almost impossible to do in music right (laughs) um so uh so instead it ended up being that you know the more i i sort of read and and sketched and thought about it i i came up uh, i came out at these sort of the two main liturgical seasons which are the seasons surrounding christmas and the season surrounding Easter. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, uh, how, how deep you get into like liturgical structuring and everything, but. Uh, well, that was like, actually going to be my next question because, <laughs> you know, what are, what are kind of the functions of the sections we'll be hearing relative to liturgy? Because I, I doubt I ever knew this even when I was a believer. So, right. like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny because, you know, because I've been, um, I've been in, you know, so I went to, to seminary mm-hmm. uh, in 2005 to 2007 and I studied specifically, it was in a program for, uh, for artists. It was a program in theology and the arts, but it was that sort of a, a, a broadly evangelical uh, seminary, so they didn't get into a lot of of high church liturgy stuff. Mm-hmm. So as I'm reading and researching for this piece for one day is a thousand years, uh, I'm starting to make connections that I never made before mm-hmm. uh, between theology and the the structuring of the church year. Um, and so what's happening with the with part one is it's it takes Advent and the nativity which is christmas specifically and then epiphany which is 
something that we, we don't usually do much with in the West, but it's a season that is connected to Christmas that follows after Christmas. And all I ever knew about it before this was like, oh, well, that's something about like the wise men coming. Like we celebrate mm-hmm. the wise men coming. Um, what I didn't see prior to that was the, the connection to, and it took really putting that side by side with, with Easter. So preceding Christmas, we have Advent, which is a season of waiting and repentance and, and quietness. And preceding Easter, there's Lent, which is also a season of, of waiting and repentance and quietness. Mm-hmm. And then we have this sort of, uh, uh, dramatic, uh, dramatic fest, uh, feast celebration event, you know, in theological terms, we have this dramatic, uh, event in terms of, uh, the divine and creation touching mm-hmm. in some way. And then, uh, that is, so I grew up Protestant and that's where things stopped. Mm-hmm. It's like Christmas. All right. Jesus is right. born. Hooray. Everything's great. Uh, and, uh, but in the liturgical here, Christmas is followed by Epiphany, which actually uh, connects to uh, the wise one coming in, or symbolize that that Christ comes and is not just for the Jews as people. He's not just for the Jewish nation; that he's actually for the whole world. Mm-hmm. And that's like having these these figures from outside coming in symbolizes that like this is actually a broader import. This is universal. And then the same thing following Easter um, in the liturgical uh, calendar comes Pentecost, which again, mm-hmm. I never had, I had no experience of as a, as a Protestant growing up. And that is, uh, in, in somewhat literal terms, that's like the birthday of the church, right? It's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like um, so f- there's this waiting period and then there's this, this feast, this sort of inbreaking celebration thing. And then the way I sort of think about it is like, it, it's like this afterglow and this deepening and this this broadening expansion into um, taking this this isolated single sort of core of an event and and spreading it out into a universal significance. Mm-hmm. So the parallelism between those two, between Easter and Christmas, was something I never saw before. Um, yeah. Before I was really working on this piece, and it struck me uh, so so powerfully that that actually ended up being uh how i revised the structure of the piece when i was looking at like instead of okay it's not going to work to be able to start at you know any of 365 days and go from there (laughs) instead i ended up like it's still partially cyclical because the way it's uh it's built is you can start at advent or you can start at lent and right, go around, yeah. or you can take each half and just do them alone on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also have like uh, so separating these major f- uh, feast seasons are 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 seasons of, of what's called ordinary time, which is like this is just you know like sort of <laughs> this is just it's, another it's a, Sunday, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know it's it's sort of a bad way of thinking about it. It's sort of like you know churning wheels until you do you grip onto the next season, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, which is, it is, it's a bad way of thinking about it, but it's the way I sort of think about it. But, um, so I have these, you know, like the, the, uh, ordinary time, actually two ordinary time two is the movement that starts the advent, uh, movement or the, the part one. And then ordinary time one is what will begin part two. 
because ordinary time one would fall in the beginning of the calendar year. Right. Yeah, because yeah, Advent okay. is the beginning of the church year. So Advent is the oh. beginning of the year. And so the first ordinary time that you hit is is ordinary time two. And then there's okay. the Lent, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and then you hit ordinary time. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, the first one you would hit is ordinary time one. Okay, be- yeah. Which is between Christmas and Easter. And then you get ordinary time two, which is between Easter and Advent again. Uh-huh. So... So that's kind of fun to me, actually. I, I like the sort of weirdness of that the first section of the part one begins with Ordinary Time 2. It's like, <laughs> that was a little confusing when I looked at the score earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes more sense now. There, I mean, there's a great deal of repetition in the piece. And I was wondering if the the numbers of the repetitions have any significance. A lot I'm of think- times they do, yeah. I'm thinking in particular of the nativity section. Yeah, yeah. So the the nativity one, the the internal divisions, the specific numberings of the internal divisions are less important than the overall. That there are sixty chords, um, okay, sixty total, and they're divided up into. I sort of, I sort of, you know. So, so I like to do like non mathematician math using Max. So mm-hmm. I like I build Max patches <laughs> to do nerdy things with numbers that I don't actually understand. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, like my favorite one is that I have built a, um, I built a grade curve calculator using Max. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done stuff like that too. Yeah, right. It's like it's great. because I'm way better in Max than I am in like Excel. Right. You know. So yeah. Like that. That actually one time that's how I graded like an entire set of uh, set of finals was like instead of you know getting out the calculator or whatever, I just figured out like okay, I push this into Max and hit. And hit uh, enter and like oh there it is you right. know yeah so no it's great yeah, I love that Max is Max is great for for math <laughs> yeah um, but anyway, yeah so the the divisions of that movement of, of nativity um, I sort of built a, sort of what was in my mind the equivalent of like a Fibonacci series but uh, like so those numbers don't fall in the Fibonacci sequence you can't and there's no right, even division of sixty. Like you can't take the first several numbers and and add and have them add up to sixty, so uh-huh. um so instead I had to take sixty and be like what would happen if I tr- divided this in a way that sort of mapped onto the beginning of the Fibonacci sequence and then just uh-huh. I I mean I can't have one and a third chords or one point like seven one six eight four chords so instead <laughs> right. I rounded you know like so I I I had sort of you know, take sixty. And you divide it, you know, sort of treat it like the beginning of the Fibonacci sequence in terms of of the uh, uh, proportion of the sections. Right. And then I just rounded from there to to add up to 60. But the 60 comes from, and that's, I guess, I said, the 60 is the important part. Now let me talk about everything but that. Um, But but the 60 comes from um, 12 times 5. And uh-huh. uh, so five is is um, a Christological number. It has to do with the five wounds of Christ. Um, and so a lot of times, a lot of my music has uh, strong elements of five in it. And those, those okay. fives are, are a Christological reference. And then um, 12 is... Sorry, j- just, just to make sure I understand. Sure. The five wounds of Christ would be the the two hands the two feet and then the side well actually when it's he's being crucified yeah so it's oh, actually the okay. head two hands uh 
it is two feet, but it's actually one nail for the feet. And then the sun. Oh. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So it's like the crown. It's, it's like five wounds of Christ or, or five wounding things, I guess, in a way. So it's like there's a crown right. of thorns, there's three nails, and there's a spear. Um, mm, okay. But yeah. And then 12 is for, um, it is simultaneously for the 12 tribes in, in Israel and for the mm-hmm. 12 apostles, apostles in yeah. the gospels. So there's, you know, just in terms of the, the, in terms of scripture, the connection between Christian scriptures and, and Jewish scriptures, there's that parallelism already or that resonance of 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I, I sort of specifically mean in terms of connecting um, sort of, and this obviously is a, a super Christian way of talking about the 12 tribes at versus the 12 apostles, right? So right. it's like, if when I'm referring to the Jewish scriptures, uh, I'm, I'm doing some specifically within a Christian framework. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that connecting of the promise uh, and sort of promise and prophecy of a Messiah with the 12 people who go and actually uh, spray the message of the Messiah out into out into the world and so that sort of takes the 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 advent the waiting 12 and then the epiphany which is the broadening and and spreading out 12 and Mm -hmm. and sort of multiplies them by christ in the middle what i I, and you can tell me if this means something or kind of means nothing but um and it kind of sounds like it it's kind of built into the process like you're you're kind of like quasi fibonacci thing but You know, you have the first chord is repeated 23 times and then you have a 17. So 23 minus 17 is 6. Then you have 17 and then 12. 17 minus 12 is 5. Then you have 12 and 8. 12 minus 8 is 4. So you have 6, 5, 4. Yeah. And it kind of seemed like it was kind of a countdown almost. Sort of, yeah. But, but you know, that was one of those things that I noticed afterward. Like I right, did the yeah. math first and then I was like, whoa, cool. And one of the things that I was like, whoa, cool about it, it's like, okay, there's three numbers. Five is in the center, which again is a Christ number. And then uh-huh. the other two, six and four, well, you know, you take one from six and you add it to four and you have two other fives. So it's sort of like you've got, it's like, which is totally <laughs> cheating, which again, like I said, it's like, like I like to do non-mathematician math in max. It's because I don't mind cheating with my numbers. That's, that sounds like a very like music theory way to like oh well you know you've got this five and then you got six and four and if you take right. four from six yeah. you, you get five and blah, blah, yeah. blah it all works come on but you know it's and it's very much the way i think about numbers and anytime uh-huh. i try to say it out loud it comes across just sounding like gibberish <laughs> so it's like i know it in my head i think so i'll just go with it and I, if i don't explain it it'll be cool and if I say it out loud, it'll be like, yeah, that doesn't actually work, but it's, I like it anyway. So Right. Is it, For that particular section, is there also some significance of how the chords progress through that section in terms of yeah. like they're slowly compressing and also slowly pulling apart? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, boy, you know, like it's funny when I talk about this, it sounds more and more mechanical, uh, but I feel like it's really actually very organic as a movement. Um, but the, the two chords, right. It's, it's C major on bottom and D major on top when you begin, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the beginning of Haydn's creation oratorio is this great big C, just a octave. It's not even a triad, uh, because he was like symbolizing this is nature, the beginning of the natural world. 
So to me, I'm thinking C major is like the natural world, which also happens just in theory. Nerdery happens to work out that it's all naturals, but you know, whatever. Um, so like C major as a chord as being nature. Mm-hmm. And then D major, you know, of course in, in music historically has been used as a chord to symbolize royalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by extension to symbolize uh, the kingship of Christ or, or of the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have C major on bottom and D major on top. And over the course of the movement, they blend and the C major ends up on top, the D major ends up on bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this comes out of, um, there's a, 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 an early church theologian uh, who said, uh, uh, sort of butchering the, the, the phrase, something along the lines of, um, God became man so that man can become gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea being that, like, the divine comes down into nature in order to lift nature up into divinity. Mm-hmm. And so that was the the way the chords blend and then ends up with D major on bottom and C major on top. Not quite exactly, because it didn't sound right. good exactly, but uh, more or less, was the idea of nature being lifted up by divinity coming down. Also, I think it sounds neat. Yeah, it does sound neat. <laughs> But, you know, um, it's like I had several versions of the voicings of those chords. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I actually used it in, in a handful of composition lessons last year uh, over, the, over the past, like, 10 months or so. Where I've been like, look, you know, you've, you've got to try out multiple versions of, the, of your material. Just taking the first thing you write is, not, you know, like you need to keep working at it and find right, the right yeah. version of it. And then I'd be like, look at this. And I'd take out a big sheet of paper and be like, these are all the ways that I tried mixing these two chords to do this gesture. And this is the one I ended up with. And it's like, I've got one of them there and I'm like, okay, I, I have literally written underneath the chord progression, like, meh. And... <laughs> Like, I'm glad I'm not the only one that like writes sarcastic things on my own music know, it's like, while I'm. Sketching. I insult myself all the time. Like, <laughs> um, you have uh, in in the electronics, you have chants that kind of mm-hmm. come in. Does the piano also have chant melodies built into it? That was the initial plan, but it doesn't. Okay. No, no. My initial plan when I was still thinking about doing things in terms of like being able to start anywhere in the liturgical year was that also there would be uh, dynamically changing elements in the piano part. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just turned out it was it was way too much to actually pull off in the context of parenting and working full time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just no, like, I okay, that. I can, I can see sort of the possibility for how you could make this work, but I think I would need like five years of just working on this because I guess mm-hmm. I just, I compose too slowly to make something that intense happen in, yeah. in the space that I had for the grant. And what kinds of things are you doing in the electronics? Uh, the electronics are uh, mostly live, actually, which mm-hmm. um, is a bit of a change. Most of what I've done in the past has been a lot of um, triggering pre-recorded sound files and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have uh, I have some live capture and looping of piano stuff happening, especially in the first uh, in the ordinary time movements, mm-hmm. um, and a uh, a live synthesis. Uh, component that's that's um, simultaneously being sent out to 
a um, sort of a, an, a, an effects bank, basically. I sort of built like a multi-effects processor in Max mm-hmm. that does routes things in different ways. And then simultaneously it's sent to like a spectral uh, a spectral freezing thing. Sort of, well, you know, like the Michael Norris uh, spectral shapers thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out when I was first playing around with it, I was just using, I think it was a spectral gate and hold plugin, but I didn't want to use that plugin in the context of the max patch for right, live yeah. processing. So I just, I ended up building one uh, that basically does the same thing, but not as well as his plugin does. Um, because, I mean, he's yeah brilliant. But, uh, but you know, so I, I have this live spectral freezing thing that, that different things get routed into at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have the sound file playback, which, which there's the, there are two layers of that. There's either the, the chant layers which there are there are two layers of chant, um, and then there's also like the the. Uh, I actually have it in the max patch. It's called sound files, but it mm-hmm. has like the bell tone that comes in, right? Yeah. And um, uh, there's a couple other sounds. Why can't I? <laughs> I can't remember what they were. I just wrote them like you know two months ago, but whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's like a, a handful of sound files that get triggered. Um, right. Uh, separately so it's all a bunch of there are there are some like the chant recordings and the the bell ringing um and a couple of other sounds are played back from sound files and everything else is either live processing or live synthesis awesome so we're gonna take a listen to it now and this is kari johnson performing this correct no actually (laughs) so oh well there it is (laughs) so it was supposed to be kari uh, performing it and her schedule sort of went haywire and okay. so with less than a month before the premiere um on on kari's recommendation i sent a note to andy lee who um, oh okay you know he mm-hmm. so he's uh recorded all of these stuff uh all this like award-winning stuff for irritable hedgehog and he's you know doing the international minimalism conference all the time all of this stuff right so I'm I'm figuring he's way too busy. He's got a lot on his plate. So I on a uh, on Kari's recommendation, I sent him a note and said, "So this is the situation. Is there any chance that you would be willing to come and do this?" And it sounded like from the from the way our messages went, it sounded like he probably got that message. He was probably sitting next to his wife, and was just like, "Hey, honey, can I go do this thing next month?" <laughs> and, and uh she said yeah sure why not and so like like within half an hour he was just like uh yeah i think i can do that send me the score <laughs> so which is ridiculous awesome. so he had yeah i mean he had less than a month with the score um i think it was actually like two and a half weeks something like that um uh-huh. to learn it and then he flew out and he played a full concert with this as the last piece Oh man, um, <laughs> rock star! Right? Yeah, it was ridiculous. So the the premiere is is with Andy, and I'm I'm still I'm tentatively planning for the recording in the new year to be with Kari, um, but I I need to talk with her and see if she still wants to do sure. it. I guess be like, hey, uh, so I don't know if you still like this piece or not, but <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So this is one day as a thousand years.
So the second and final piece we're going to talk about is uh, your piece Monument 3, Charleston Summer of 2015 Mm. for Wind Ensemble and Electronics. And this has two movements. Uh, The first movement is called Say Their Names, and the second movement is called Liturgy of Remembrance. So can you tell me about the Monument series? Because this is the third piece uh, in the the Monument series. So what kind of binds these pieces together? The, the thing that they're all united around is actually a scale. Um, they When I was um, doing my doctoral work at UMKC, I had a... Um, I, I was working with Chen Yi in an orchestration class, and uh, I had to write this, you know, it was an orchestration class, I had to write something for orchestra. And I'm not usually, like, I'm not super comfortable with large ensembles. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I sort of got into it and I, my initial plan was actually to write a four movement, uh, symphonia and it was going to be all based around, uh, the idea of, uh, sort of like a stone, like a, like a hard, big granite monument, um, mm-hmm. uh, and the way light plays over its surface, sort of like if, if a, if a giant stone is in a, is underneath a tree and there's sunlight filtering through the leaves, what does that do to the surface of the stone? Well, the stone is unchanging, but different features of it come out. Different bits of it are are, are accentuated by the light at different times. Um, and so I I ended up I took a, a four note uh, pitch class set and uh, just sort of extended it. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the the way I made it, it actually it doesn't repeat at the octave. It's a scale that repeats at the ninth. So, uh, at the major ninth. And so it takes seven octaves before actually land or before the pattern, the, the, the interval series begins again from the same note. Right. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, um, this is initially in, I want to say in 2009 or something like that when I was doing this, maybe 2000, I think it was 2009, but, um, the, uh, I started it from F for some reason. I don't really know why it sort of seems like if i'm gonna write for orchestra maybe start from e so i can get the you know like just right, standard yeah. <laughs> bass tuning or something like that but no i started from f for some reason and so i have the seven note or seven octave scale um that's all based around uh i should know this off the top of my head but i think it's a zero two three six pitch class set um mm-hmm. and uh so I do, I, yeah, I think it's 0236. I have a piano next to me, I suppose. I yeah. Um, and then it's repeated. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, repeated uh, semitone up. Okay, yeah. So you have 0236 and then 0236 again, but a semitone up from whatever the six was prior. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, it builds up into this great big gigantic scale that happens to have a an awkward augmented second in the middle of it but um uh, you know whatever uh, yeah you love those <laughs> yeah right it's like everybody every string and wind player wants to play lots and lots of fast figures around augmented seconds and, uh-huh. and whatever uh but uh so uh yeah so i wrote the first movement of this piece which was just called Monument 1 at the time because it was supposed to be... Or no, it was just called Monument at the time because it was supposed to be the first movement. Um, and then I never wrote the other three movements. I have sketches for them, but I just never wrote them. Um, but I really liked that first movement, so I just, you know, sort of... I 
<laughs> published it. I included it on my list of works, right? Um, as just a single movement piece. And then I just, I always, I thought, you know, like, oh, maybe someday I'll return to this and finish the other movements. But for now, I've got other stuff to do. And then um, uh, a few years ago, I got a commission from uh, a friend of mine in Iowa to write for a trio of flute, alto sax, and cello. And it was for a, um, uh, for sort of a, a visual art music concert. So there was a, a series of digital uh, prints done by this guy who took a, a crucifixion painting and just did a whole bunch of different versions of it. And it's mm -hmm. like basically sort of digital versions of this thing that are, they were super cool actually. Um, but I, you know, I had a, a pretty short timetable to write it in. And so I was sort of mulling over, what do I do with it? And I decided to go back to the monument thing because the monument initially was intended as, like, I think I have on, well, it's in the program notes at least, if not on the scores, but I think I have something along the lines of it's it's dedicated to victims of, of unjust violence. Right. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, there there's a victim of unjust violence there. It's uh, it's the innocent Christ crucified. So I, I went back to the scale for that. And after I did that, it's sort of like, well, if I'm going to write Monument and Monument 2, I should keep this going. Mm -hmm. um, and I got, uh, I, I was asked by our our uh, band and orchestra director here at Washington State to write a piece for them. Um, he asked me in 2014, and I said, yeah, sure, certainly. And then sort of hemmed and hawed over it and didn't do much, and I was planning on writing it over the course of uh, summer of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when the shootings in Charleston happened. And, um, I actually sort of, uh, because I was already, uh, sort of working with the scale, I hadn't really generated any material that, that I really liked yet, mm -hmm. but I'd just been sketching with the scale and thinking about the scale and thinking about the import of it in monument as this this monument and, and memorial for victims of unjust violence, it seemed like this was immediately like it. And it like that event, uh, weighed so heavily on me. Like, I mean, I think it did for a lot of people, but yeah, it was... I mean, I actually cannot believe that that was only, well, that it was, it was two years ago. It seems yeah. like it just happened. Yeah. You know, maybe and yet at the same maybe time it's, it's that like, way because it it's you know, it's just happening all the time. So it, right. it it always seems like it just happened. Yeah, exactly. And it's like I feel like, you know, culturally we're so inured to this stuff because it just happens over and over and for for like you know, the before this there had been like the 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 shooting in the theater in Colorado and there'd been right. you know like I mean, Sandy Sandy Hook was before this. Sandy right? Hook was before this. I mean, God knows yeah. how many shootings there were, and have been since. But um, right. you know, like this one, I it something really, really something about like you know, like these these people had. Uh, I mean, it was just this community Bible study. They invited this kid in. They were trying to include him in this Bible study and 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 make him feel like he's part of the community. Um. And then he shoots them all, and 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 the horror of that, and then and then compounded by the horror of of racist violence, and yeah. and to me, I guess um, I don't know, man. It's it's hard to. I wrote a a a long 
sort of introduction to the piece that for the premiere I actually spoke. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's it connects to so many different things that it's kind of hard to put into words. But, you know, on the one hand, it's uh, one of the significant things I think to me was that my kids, you know, at the time they were two and four, um, and I was just starting to really realize like, wow, my children are going to grow up with a totally different understanding of the world than if they were black. Like if, Mm -hmm. if my children were black growing up, uh, at two and four, they would already have experienced their first instances of racism. Um, and my kids, like to them, the, the world was just a beautiful, innocent place where, you know, like mommy and daddy were these, these beacons of love and security and, there was nothing that that they couldn't protect them from and all of this stuff. And I'm thinking like my friends, my friends who are raising children who are not white are having different kinds of conversations with their kids. Um, I mean, for, for a time there, I mean, months and months, it seemed like you couldn't turn on the news without seeing, seeing, not reading or hearing, but actually seeing a black father gunned down in front of his children. Right. And this, I mean, you know, that was, of course, racism inherent in the police forces and in those particular places. But I mean, it's it's all stems, stems from one thing, racism. And I mean, for for me, like, I remember the first time I, I like truly felt pain from get from seeing the news of like shooting deaths or injuries you know without knowing the person mm-hmm. um and that was that was actually uh, Gabby Giffords oh, right. when when she when she was shot i remember like i it was for for whatever reason i remember exactly like how i felt where i was like what what i was doing what you know where i was sitting in my apartment when i you know opened the computer and saw that and since then and especially after since I became a father, you know, each one of these shooting deaths has really taken a toll on me because those people are someone's father, mother, son, daughter, you know, it's like, yeah, it's it's sort of like, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't mean it flippantly, but it, it sort of goes back to like when you were talking about star Wars, uh, like, like that this character is a connection to the human side of bereavement that we mm-hmm. miss in movies usually that somebody somebody you know bit character dies and you know life goes on and and the heroes keep going and and we're given this character as somebody died and here is an unimportant like maintenance person in the background mm-hmm. who is who has lost that person now um, right and that's i think that yeah exactly like being a father like i don't know it's it's puts everything in life in a different sort of light you look at totally. loss differently you look at uh, obviously i look at death differently like like i think I'm, i've always been just like like most people i'm generally careful not to die um <laughs> like i i try to not like you know drive into semi trucks sure. and whatever when i'm going yeah. places but um after i've had kids i'm like super aware of this like when i'm yeah. just like i'm gonna go to the grocery store I'm just like, I've got to be careful because if I get in an accident and die, my kids are without a father. <laughs> it's like, it's a yeah, sort of no, dark way to interact with the world, but it's, it's involuntary at this point. Yeah. So, but, but with Monument 3, like, like that was 
sort of for me personally, psychologically adjusting to being a father and then seeing all of this like horrible racist violence happening and, and, you know, innocent kids, innocent parents, uh, losing each other over, mm-hmm. over racism. And yeah. it just connected to me so deeply, uh, for reasons I don't, I don't think that it's like, there's no like deep rational, like, well, this is why it's, it's experiential, but, mm-hmm. um, so that's where that piece came out of, like in the context of, of having written monument the first one as just sort of a a general like uh you know we kind of almost abstract in a way yeah you know and and i think you know like that one came out of thinking about the horrors of war mainly that at that point Mm -hmm. in like 2008 or something i guess at that point we'd only been at war for seven years but (laughs) you know um yeah but, you know, like thinking about like there are these and I think, you know, at the time I was really angry about um, as I should really still be. But it's hard to stay angry about everything constantly. But I was really specifically upset and angry about drone bombings yeah. um, mm-hmm. and that the United States was was killing, you know, basically just killing indiscriminately, killing kids and families and stuff who happened to be in the same place as suspected terrorists and that, you know, we had this massive death toll that was minimized as, as collateral damage and any, any male over the age of 12 or something like that was counted as an enemy combatant. And it's like, it's it's ridiculous, just completely absurd and horrible. And, you know, that was where monument one came out of was thinking about Mm -hmm. war that we were in. And Monument Two is this sort of like response to just like these paintings of the crucifixion, and then Monument Three is it, like I was working on it. I hadn't been planning on this wind ensemble piece being one of the monument series, but as this event happened, and it's, I didn't know how to compose something while I was still sort of vibrating from this event personally, yeah. and so the only way that I knew how to like okay, I have to write this piece because there's a premiere in five months or something like that. And they, they need a piece. Um, the only f- way that to me felt honest, uh, artistically was to, okay, well, this is the, the thing that is weighing on my heart constantly mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Like, this is just so central to everything I'm thinking right now was to write in response to it. So I'm, kind of catching in in this piece as well some kind of numeric connections yep um the first movement is structured as kind of nine statements nine being the number of people uh the nine being the number of people who were murdered right um and in the second movement um you have this uh this kind of group of of soloists uh marimba guitar and what was the other instrument uh it's marimba guitar and vibes okay marimba guitar and vibes so you have three members and they are repeating three notes across that are cast across seven subdivisions so you have these numbers three and seven yeah i thought i kind of thought that was significant yeah that i mean that's that's theological nerdery rearing its head again um (laughs) which is like you know it's it's everywhere it's it's every like all of my music is is in a way it's just so much nerdery but um 
but yeah, like the like three is obvious. Like that's a trinitarian number. The trinity. And then yeah. Seven is this number of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was you know that's a conscious choice to use those numbers and to use that number of instruments. And who's who's performing on this recording? That is the uh, the WSU Symphonic Wind Ensemble, and then um, I have a trio of the 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 so not actually the trio who are doing the the numeric uh, repetition thing, but uh, actually the soloists. So there's oboe, there's alto sax, mm-hmm. and piccolo, and those are colleagues of mine who graciously agreed to play the piece for me. They sat awesome. in with the group. And so, um, and actually, so, uh, so one of them, Sophia Tegger, uh, I did doctoral work with at UMKC and then by sheer happenstance, I ended up getting this job at WSU where she had done, I want to say her master's degree. It was, she did either her undergrad or her master's degree here. Um, and then went on, we were colleagues at W at uh, UMKC. And then I ended up at WSU with no connection to it previously. And now she's back here also. Here, so <laughs> Whatever. That's weird. Um, yeah. And then, uh, so uh, saxophone is Horace Alexander Young, who um, is just marvelous uh, sax faculty. He's 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 like new at WCU and not because before I was here, he had taught here for I think eleven years, and then he moved somewhere else, and now he's back. So, okay. yeah, that's weird, but um, he's great. And then uh, uh, Carrie McCarthy is oboe faculty here. And so between awesome. the three of them, they came in, and that's why these solo lines in the in liturgy of remembrance uh, sound like super beautiful. <laughs> so this is Monument Three, Charleston, summer of 2015. <laughs> Thank you. 
and then we'll get to the final question, the question that I ask all the guests I have on the podcast, which is how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue as your life? Like totally accidentally. Um, I love these answers. All right, let's right? get into it. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I uh, was a metal guitarist. I played in thrash, like progressive thrash band in high school. So we were like heavy metal, like, balls to the wall metal fast and furious and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, then like shortly before college, uh, like a year before I went to college, that band ended up splitting up. And a few months later I joined, uh, another band, um, who was, uh, and that was more like a prog rock band. Um, and so I was, a, I was a guitarist. I played rock guitar and my first year of college, um, I was like, I should take like a music theory class. I, that would make me like a super badass guitarist. Um, and so I did. I took all these music classes. I was a Spanish secondary ed major. Um, and uh, by the end of my freshman year, uh, by, by midway through my second semester of my freshman year, I had dropped the Spanish major. And I was just <laughs> figuring I was going to be a music major. I didn't know like what I was going to be for sure as a music major. But um, but I also had encountered the Rite of Spring uh, mm, that yeah. spring. So spring of my freshman year, I encountered the Rite of Spring and Petrushka, uh, which was just like, uh, that was like the energy of metal mm -hmm. in orchestral form. And so the summer after my freshman year of college, I listened to the, the Belez, uh Cleveland, I want to say, uh, yeah, it's the Belez with Cleveland, the Deutsche Grammophone recording of uh, uh, Petrushka and the Rite of Spring, basically on loop for the entire summer. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I was, I was like this, uh, whatever, like 19-year-old kid driving around in my mid-80s Oldsmobile, what was it, what did I drive? It was an Olds uh, Cutlass Supreme. You know, like, <laughs> like huge, yes. old, it was like 1986, gigantic car that had my whole box of, like, cassettes of, like, all of Anthrax's albums and Slayer <laughs> and Iron Maiden and all this stuff. And for, and I spent the summer, like, rocking out to the Rite of Spring. And, uh, exactly. It's like or, power or with chords. Petrushka, you're like, -da 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 -da. like <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. And so, like, you know, I I started. I was taking. I was I was uh, in the middle of the music theory sequence by that point. I started like just sort of pushing my own ideas around on paper with a pencil, and and I uh, by uh, sort of on a lark, I decided to show them to our composition professor there who this is a small school we just had one composer on faculty and, it, and he was like hey you should take composition with me next semester and then i was doomed from there on out yeah like, uh, <laughs> you were trapped <laughs> right it's like it's like i woke up 20 years later i was like shit what did i just do but, i've always uh, thought i've always thought that the last movement of bartok's uh fourth string sortet is perhaps the most metal classical composition like, that is yeah yeah I mean, that, basically, it has all like the Metallica rhythms in it. Like, you know, it's it's awesome. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've had students um, where they're they're like really into like metal and stuff, and I just play that Bartok for them. I was like, yeah, yeah. you can do this too. You know, 
Right. No, that's so. So Bartok, actually, the fourth quartet. That is one that like I I loved as an undergrad, um, and then also the um, the last movement of Barber's Piano Concerto. Um, yes. Like the, yes. the five eight movement. Like right. that is. Like that is metal yeah that's I love that piece man yeah I mean that that's just one of those like that's just a balls to the wall rock and roll movement for orchestra and piano but it's it's intense nonstop through the whole thing it's just super intense and it has you know I think I I've thought about this a lot. Like, uh, my music did not used to be uh, sort of overtly minimalist, which Mm -hmm. I've basically accepted at this point. Like, yeah, my music is basically, like, minimalist. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did not start out that way. I started out writing, like, super, super knotty, thorny counterpoint. um, And uh, uh, just, uh, I was also, I was a percussionist. I guess I still am sort of a percussionist here and there, but... Um, so like I, I wrote a lot of like super rhythmically intense stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of dense counterpoint and all of this. Um, and, uh, as, and that was, you know, when I'm young and as my, as my language as a composer sort of started to gel, um, I started to move more and more into this simplicity. Um, not always, uh, simplicity, uh, that was consonant or or pretty in any way like a lot of times the simplicity would be really intense and and still loud and and sometimes rhythmically super active but i realized over the last several years as i've been thinking about it it's like oh this is because i grew up playing metal and Mm -hmm. metal ultimately is quite simple like harmonically it's quite simple um it's quite straightforward structurally it's usually fairly straightforward you know a lot of the progressive metal i i like is not quite as much but you know as far as uh like wearing one affect on its on its sleeve that's basically what metal does Mm -hmm. and so it's like well this is perfectly natural for me this is the language i grew up writing songs in when i was like 16 years old in my garage band and now it's sort of like the grown-up version of that except i'm writing for like max patches with piano (laughs) awesome man well uh before we go can you tell everyone where they can find you and connect with you online yeah um so scottblasco.com that's my website Uh, everybody has to have a website um but uh i mean i'm probably more active um on soundcloud and twitter Mm -hmm. um so uh, SoundCloud is, is um, I have a, a whole bunch of recordings up on. Uh, and then Twitter, I, I ostensibly attempt to keep more or less music related, but it's hard to do that when you're like constantly confronted with, with the circus peanut in chief. Um, so it's, that's pretty good. It's uh, right. I mean, it's like non. you can't, you yeah. can't, get away from it it's constantly in your face so it's like there's there's a fair amount of just sort of like come on world pull it together right um and you're on twitter you're at scott blasco right yeah everything um everything except instagram i've managed to get just scott blasco nice just all one word no spaces no nothing and somebody else so there's a dude from i want to say detroit um named scott blasco 
um, who <laughs> I think the last time I looked, I think he has two pictures, and one of them is him flexing in a mirror shirtless. <laughs> so I'm like, so it's oh, not dude, that guy if you're looking it's for Scott not on that Instagram. dude. Like, uh, it's like I'm not that ripped, and I I also don't have any pictures of myself flexing in mirrors. It's just not something I've ever pursued. So, but uh, on on. Instagram, I, I'm composer bot, like robot, but composer bot. Mm-hmm. And I felt bad about that after I snagged it because then I realized that there's a composer bot on Twitter uh, already. And so now I, I totally stole that handle, but I'm not giving it back. Nope, not at all. <laughs> all <now>. right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this, Scott. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, man. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.